Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh, he broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you this week. Back to normal after episode number 100. Coming up today, we have a college basketball chat. I recently got to speak with Zach Braziller of the New York Post. Call up some of the big headlines around the world of college basketball. Talk some of the locals as well. That coming up with Zach in just a bit. Be sure you stay tuned to the end of the show. We're going to take a dip back into the world of Curb Your Enthusiasm. They had a Jets-themed plot point on last night's episode of, of the show. I'll be actually joined by Martina Puccio, who I broke down the premiere of Curb with. We are big Jet fans. This plot spoke to us. We have thoughts. That's coming up at the end of the podcast. But we'll get it all rolling with the season opening tip, where we take a look at some of the storylines surrounding the Mets and the Yankees in spring training. Right after this. I mean, last year, the Yankees were absolutely ravaged by injuries and finally getting everybody back after an offseason, ready to go, was going to be, you know, the real Yankees. And instead, Paxton going down, Severino going down, Judge, which at least Judge feels like it's day to day. But with the starting pitching of Paxton and Severino, that puts an enormous amount of pressure on Garrett Cole. Brian Cashman's proven that he can build a roster that can sustain, just like last year, they got to the World Series despite all those injuries. But before spring training even starts, to have two of your best starters already lost for a period of time is really scary. And I agree with you. It kind of feels like, wow, is this going to happen again to him? All right, we are back with this opening tip. You guys heard from last week's podcast, Damon and Mendelara, discussing New York Yankees injury woes, which at that time were limited to Luis Severino has issue with his elbow, and James Paxton was out for a couple of months. Aaron Judge is dealing with issues, but things have gotten much, much worse since then. Luis Severino out for the season now with Tommy John surgery. We don't know when he's going to pitch again, probably not for a year and a half, but big blow of the Yankee rotation. Paxton is out. Giancarlo Stanton now out for a while. They rife cast strain, shut down. Probably not going to be ready on opening day. With his injury history, who knows how many games he's going to play. Remember, he played about like 10, 15 games last year. Not a lot, for sure. Aaron Judge, now he's got groin discomfort in addition to the shoulder issue. And if you're a Yankee fan, you do have to kind of feel what D.A. is saying there a bit. Are we going through deja vu all over again? Is this going to be another year of, you know, this guy is hurt, this guy is hurt, that guy's out two months, that guy's out three weeks. And you have to wonder, are the Yankees going to get that lucky again and have all these things break their way when they're missing half their team? I mean, last year, look at all the things you had right. Mike Talkman came out of nowhere being a contributor. Luke Voigt stepped up, hit a ton of home runs. Gio Urshela came off the scrap heap, hit over 300, and played excellent defense at their base. You had great filling campaigns from guys like across the board, but... You're expecting all that to happen again? Seems like a lot. Now, is this saying the Yankees are not going to make the playoffs? Absolutely not. They're still going to the playoffs. Are they still going to win the division? Yeah. I mean, look at the AL East right now. Baltimore's a dumpster fire. May not go 17-2 against the Orioles again this year, but they're still going to win a solidly 14-15 or 15 against the Orioles. Toronto's on the way up, but they still have issues. They still have maturing to do from that young lineup. The pitching, we have to see how it comes together with young Jin Ru and that group coming together. The Red Sox basically told you, we're taking this year off. We trade with Mookie Betts. We trade away David Price. We're going to ride out some bad money. Rebuild the team. That's the plan there. The Rays, yes, the Rays are pesky. The Rays are feisty. The Rays play the Yankees hard, but you look at this roster, even without Giancarlo, even without Aaron Judge or a bit, you're not the two pitchers. Are you telling me the Yankees aren't going to win the American East? With what they have, they still have plenty. It's not time to panic right now. I think what we can take away from here is that 
you should not be playing the over on the Yankees, which I think was too high to begin with. 102 and a half wins is a lot in baseball. The Yankees won 103 last year. Their whole team basically hurt. You're asking them to do that again with no guarantees of repeat performance, and that's asking a lot. Now, is this team going to win at least 95? Sure. They get the playoffs? Absolutely. But you have to be concerned a little bit and say, you know what? If all the injuries start piling up again, does this sort of take away our aura of invincibility a little bit and lower our potential just a bit? Because the Yankees still have pitching questions now. The opening day rotation at the moment. I mean, you have Garrett Cole and Tanaka at the top, which is great. Jay Happ, who most Yankees wanted to trade, are not happy they did not. He's the three. You got those two taken care of. And then you have Jordan Montgomery back in as the four. And the five is some combination of either Luis Sessa, Michael King, Clark Schmidt, an opener. I mean, that will get you by in the American League. The American League is garbage. But if you're getting to the postseason, you need a deeper rotation than that. Now, Paxton should be back probably by the end of May, early June. That will help. You may have to go trade for a starter. Who knows if you're going to have Domingo Herman, who was suspended for the first two months of the year, was wearing down at the end of the last season before he got the suspension. Pitching still an issue for the Yankees. They still have question marks. They are still going to the playoffs. I'm not saying it's time to panic, but the injuries are definitely worth monitoring. I think it's just, you know, these things don't go away that fast. It's the same group of players who basically changed the training staff. And Aaron Judge now has gotten hurt on a regular basis. Giancarlo has gotten hurt on a regular basis. Severino has been hurt multiple times. Paxton had an injury history before he came to the Yankees. And now you're hoping for different things with these players. Doesn't work like that. You have to live with the injuries. They have a deep enough team to shield to get around it. But it's something to keep in the back of your mind when you're sitting here in August and you're wondering, are these guys going to be healthy and ready to go for the playoffs? Because that's what matters for the Yankees. It's all about the wins they have to get in October. We know they're going. We know Garrett Colts going to be a massive help once they get there, but this is about, this regular season for them is meaningless. They could win 92 and get in. They could win 116 and get in. If they don't take the trophy home in October, it means absolutely nothing. Meanwhile, we go to the other side of Florida for a little, we'll go to Met camp for a little bit, and the Mets, interestingly, they'll say they're pretty healthy. They've had a couple of minor dings and things along the way. I mean, Jed Lauer's got a massive knee brace, but so far, so good. Yohannes Cespedes working his way back, hitting bombs in spring training practice, but yet to play in a game as a recording. Brandon Nimmo, J.D. Davis, a couple of day-to-day things, but if you're a Mets fan, I think you're quietly encouraged by this group because, I mean, they have depth in starting pitching, which I like. They have six stars. I will get to the starter play in a minute, I promise. I, I have thoughts on that. They have a deep everyday lineup, and they have potential kingmaker Yohannes Espinus because people forget this at Yohannes because he was hurt so much. He missed a lot of time, but when he plays, they win, and they win a lot. As much grief as he gets for the stuff with the boar and the cars and the heels and all that, they don't win that 2015 pen without Yohannes Espinus. They don't make the wild card run in 2016 without Yohannes Cespedes. When he plays, they are a much better baseball team. And imagine having him in the middle of that lineup with Pete Alonso and Michael Conforto and Wilson Ramos and Robbie Cano. That group could be incredibly deep. And I think if healthy, the deepest lineup in the division. That's a huge positive you're a Met fan. The bullpen. I know they still have issues. I know Diaz and Familia have not looked great so far this spring, but A, spring training, who cares? B, can they possibly get worse than they were last year? Is that possible to be worse than they were? You would think just by the law of averages that both Diaz and Familia will get better. I have more faith in Diaz because the metrics tell you last year that like he should have been a lot better than he was. He still struck out 99 batters last year. He still had great stuff, but I think he was a guy who was more affected by the wacky baseball and not be able to grip the slider, and that led to the surge in home runs. 
I think if they fix the baseball so far, it seems like it's going in the right direction. I would not be shocked if he has a good year this year. Familia, I have more questions about because with him, it's a matter of like commanding the sinker, which has always been a bit of an issue for him in the walks. I mean, he's in better shape, but that's the cliche. It's like, I don't know how many times you go to spring training here. He's in the greatest shape of his life. He's going to be so much better now. And then they're not. I'm not so unfamiliar. Patances will be huge for that bullpen. I think in depth in general is going to be huge for this team. And just, they have options if things don't work. They can go to more guys. And the bullpen, they have a bunch of arms. They have a bunch. They have six capable starters right now. They have a deep lineup. The thing I'm worried about, though, this plan with the fifth starter thing, which if you have not heard, this story came out last week in the New York Post, that the Mets are toying with this idea of trying to reinvent the wheel at the fifth starter. As you know, they have the top three is set with Jacob deGrom, Noah Syndergaard, Marcus Stroman. Okay? Rick Porcello is the four because he can't work in relief. He's durable. He throws innings. And you figure, okay, he had a bad, he's a good year, bad year guy. Last year was a bad year. This year should be a good year. Your five spot comes down to either Stephen Matz or Michael Waka in theory. But the Mets are thinking about doing things a little differently. According to Mike Puma of the Post, they're talking about having this idea where they do the fifth starter based on matchup. So if they have a lefty-heavy team coming in, they'll start Stephen Matz. Righty-heavy team, Michael Waka. The opener is possible as well. Maybe they're talking about throwing Robert Cassell or Seth Lugo at start of games and following it up with Matz or Waka. And the idea has merit based on the way they structure Michael Waka's contract. I mean, Waka has these weird incentives in the deal where he gets points based on like three inning plus relief appearances or certain amounts of starts. And those earn points and those rate earn him more money. I mean, in theory, this sounds like a Sayer Metrics person's like dream. You're like, cool, we can manipulate matchups. We can put our guys in the positions. In theory, in theory, it's not bad. The issue you deal with with this system is human nature, the egos, the whole idea of like, I'm a starter, I have a routine. I do not want my routine disrupted. Imagine telling a starting pitcher, okay, this week you're starting, next week you're coming in after the opener, two weeks from now you're working out of the bullpen, and then you're starting again. What pitcher is able to get in a rhythm like that? That takes conditioning from like the minor leagues to be more versatile like that. Asking established major league pitchers to do that is asking for trouble. And I think they got a problem with Michael Waka with this specifically because every time Michael Waka speaks to the media, he says, I'm a starter. I've been told I was a starting. I plan on starting. Michael Waka is not going to be thrilled if Luis Rojas walks out to him and says, hey, you're coming in after the opener today. Next week, you're going to be the fifth starter. Next week after that, you might be in after Mats. Who knows? This thing, I don't think it's sustainable long term. I think the Mets have to try not to reinvent the wheel here and just kind of make a choice and say, okay, Steven, Michael, you two are going to battle for the job. Whoever wins makes the rotation. Whoever does not is pitching along out of the bullpen. Now, most of the time, these situations tend to resolve themselves. I mean, the Yankees at the beginning of this year would have said, oh, we have too many starters, and all of a sudden they need starting pitching. The Mets have six, so they would like to be able to have to make a choice between Steve and Matt's and Michael Walker, but reality says something's going to happen. Somebody's going to have a sore arm and miss two weeks. Somebody's going to, you know, pull a hamstring this couple of weeks. The Mets last year, you look at their rotation, they were remarkably healthy. They got basically 30 starts out of every spot if you combine Marcus Stroman and Jason Vargas as the fifth starter. That's almost unheard of in baseball. The odds of that happening again are slim. So you will need both of them to start at some point. I would not, like try and shatter either's comments with this wacky idea. Just I would just stick with something simple. Pick a fifth starter. Ride it. Not rocket science. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. Starting pitching is important. Starters need reliability in their routines. 
unless you're the Rays and you're conditioning your pitchers to behave this way, don't mess with your starters' routines. Give them set roles and move on. We'll keep an eye on the baseball as spring training progresses. But up next, time to talk some college basketball with Zach Braziller. I spoke with him towards the end of last week. This is before some of the big St. John's upsets. This is before Iona gets referenced before they lost to Niagara over the weekend. So that stuff may be not as up-to-date as I would like. Just want to throw that out there as a little disclaimer. But I think it's a valuable conversation. I think it's a lot of good stuff in here. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Zach Braziller right after this. Here comes Duke. He's got a timeout left. Stanley Smart right there. At the oh, 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 there it is. Carry, pump fake, oh. blocked underneath by Huff. Huff with the block shot. He did Whoa. it again. This is the W. This is this his 10th oh, block oh, of the night. Oh, there's Carey. I thought he had himself a layup. But Huff says, no, no, no. All right, we are back here on the Just and the Suffering podcast. We're talking some college basketball, starring a run of college basketball shows. Joining me today, a new voice to the podcast. He covers college hoops in the New York Post. Zach Braziller is on the line today. Zach, welcome. How are you? Hey, man. Thanks for uh, having me. Thanks again for coming on. And I got to say, I'm a, big college bas- I'm a big college basketball fan. And I have to say, I love the parody this year. I love the fact that anybody can meet anybody. It makes it so much fun. So what do you think about this parody this year? Yeah. I- you know, I know there's some people that are a little down on it. They say, you know, there isn't a great team, there isn't a great player. But, yeah, I'm with you. I love it. I, I mean, I think it's unpredictable. I think it can be made for a great NCAA tournament, a great championship week. You know, you, there there really isn't, uh, you know, I know people are really high on Butler and Kansas right now, uh, Baylor and Kansas right now, but I don't think there's one team that, if you told me they didn't they didn't make the final four, that surprised me. And yeah, I mean, I think it, it's great. It's, you know, I, I wrote a while ago that it's like the opposite of college football, where everyone just knows who's going to be in the playoff. And to have the opposite, where it's just, to me, there's so much up in the air, it just adds so much interest, you know, to March, which is obviously the month that everyone, you know, loves. Yeah, I love my March as well. We're we're getting ready for college basketball. March Madness coming up. Conference tournament's coming up soon, and... What do you think? What do you think? I mean, as we said, there's a lot of great teams. Who do you think is the best team you've seen so far this year? You know, if we're talking about live, obviously I was at the Champions Classic. Kansas was very good. Duke was very good that night. Um, but it was so long ago that it's hard to, you know, to me, Kansas, I watched them the other day in Seattle. They, they looked nothing like the team I saw back in early November. I see Hall's very good. I think Creighton's very good. I think Villanova's very good. I've obviously seen those teams lie. Uh, you know, I, I've watched some of San Diego State. I think they're a very good team. I love the way they defend. Um, I think Gonzaga's very good when you look at their size and their, their talent level and just how disciplined they are. So I think there's a lot. There are probably, probably eight to ten teams that could win it all, which is, to me, just is it's going to make March great because it's, you know, it's just going to be so up in the air and so so much uncertainty, which is, I think, what most people love about this sport. Yeah, you, know, you mentioned there's eight to ten teams could win it all. I think you can even see, like, up there to 20 to 25, you could make a case to make the final four, which I think is almost unheard of. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I don't think you've ever seen, you know, at least recently, the difference between, like, a two and a three seed and a six or a seven seed is going to be so minuscule that you're going to see a ton of upsets. I, I know we like we kind of say this every year, but I really think this year it's just going to be an absolute free for all because the, the the margin is just so small between these teams. You know, when when you take away the great the great players, you know, you, we don't have nearly as many NBA guys this year in the sport. It it, it just it leads to so much parity. And yeah, I I think it's going to be I think it's going to be really good for for the game. Yeah, it'll be a fun tournament for sure. We talked about some of the, the uh, big, uh, like, talented top teams here. Who do you think have been some of the biggest disappointments? I mean, clearly North Carolina is one of them. Uh, I don't know if people thought they were a Final Four team, but I thought they were definitely a tournament team. Uh, and they're, I mean, they're having one of the worst seasons in, in, in program history. I believe they're 10-16 right now. They've obviously been a colossal tournament. You know, they had 
Cole Anthony coming in one of the best freshmen in the country. Kid is still going to be a lottery pick if he goes pro. They've obviously been, been, a, been a, a, a major disappointment. Texas is another team people thought they'd be better. Um, I thought they'd be a tournament team in it, and now this could be it for Shaka Smart if he doesn't finish really strong and, maybe, and somehow get into the tournament. VCU uh, was a team I thought that people people had as a preseason top 25 team. Now it looks like with a fly they're on, that they have to win the A-10 uh, to, to, to get into the tournament. Um, Washington, you know, they, they, they added some really terrific freshmen, including Isaiah Stewart, and they're, I mean, they, they're at the bottom of the Pac-12, and they don't even look like they're going to make the NIT. So, I mean, there have been, you know, I think, and I think most people have Washington as a top 15 team at least, and there, there have been a lot of, you know, disappointments. Some of them have, to, have had to do with injury, and, and some of them just have to do with underperformance. Um, those those probably would be mine. I, I, I would have looked at Providence until this run they've been on. I always had Providence as a big disappointment as well, but now you know, it looks like they're they're at least a position to make the tournament having a great year in the Big East after they were just such a disappointment in November, December, losing games to the likes of Long Beach State and Penn. Um so that that they've kind of saved themselves a little bit here in in, in February by by putting together some wins. Yeah, they have. I think the ACC in general has been very disappointing because, I mean, you said North Carolina. They might not get more than four or five teams in the tournament. It seems like very low for them. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I I should have included them. I mean, it's, I can't remember the last time the ACC was this down. I think they're – I definitely see four. I think NC State could be a fifth. You know, when I say the four, obviously the big three, Duke, Florida State, Louisville. Virginia, I believe, will get in. And I think NC State, after that big win over Duke, has a pretty good shot. So they're getting at five. But you're looking at three very high level teams and two other teams that, you know, could very well be one and done. It's stunning to watch. You know, usually Monday night, you have always great ACC games. And this year, you've had a few, but it's, it's the league has just been so down. It's, you know, look, we, we see it happen year to year. Leagues are good. They, then they go down a little bit when kids graduate. But I don't think anyone saw that. The league basically being this poor. Like I said, I can't remember a time that the ACC was this mediocre. I can't. It's been a long, long time. Yeah, it definitely has been a long, long time. And the other, I think the biggest point from disappointing for me in terms of expectations is Michigan State because they were number one preseason. They didn't really have the whole team because Josh Langford got hurt at the start of the year, and then like they've been kind of just like floating around like the three to five range of the Big Ten. But that's nowhere near what people thought they could be at the start of the year. Yeah, they were. I think they were. They were a preseason pick of a lot of people to win the national title. I thought they'd be very good. I thought they'd be better than they've been. But I also wouldn't rule them out of going on a big march run. This is stuff Izzo does all the time. You know, his teams kind of get it together slowly in February. They start playing their best in March, and they get a nice draw. They pull off a big upset. I, I would not be. You know, they're definitely a Final Four contender and still a national championship contender. I know they're probably not be higher than a four or five seed. But they have some. They have had some nice wins of late. I know they got Maryland Saturday. At, you know, these slants, and I wouldn't be surprised to see them win that game. I, I would. I. It has been a little disappointing, but I think it's way too early to count them out. This is a team that's still with, with Cassius Winston and David Taylor and all those guys is very capable of going on a big run. Yeah, they are capable of going on a huge run, and. They're in one of the deepest leagues in the country, but the, the I think one of the other huge deep leagues is the one right around this area, the Big East. So can you talk about the depth of the Big East this year? Yeah, it's, it's clearly the best the Big East has been since it, it you know it created the new you know, the new league when all the teams left and they 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 added Xavier and, and Butler and Creighton. This is clearly the best the league has has been. Um, I expect them to get a, get their, their the big three of Seton Hall, Villanova, and Creighton all to be top four seeds. The Big East has not had three teams in the top 16 since uh, they recreated the league. Um, and look, the Big East has been good, but it's fallen short in March. Villanova's kind of saved it by winning two national championships, but they really, they haven't sent a lot of teams to the second weekend. This is the year, I think, where you can at least get three teams uh, going over Creighton and Seton Hall into that second weekend, which would be significant for the league. You know, you're adding UConn next year, so the league is only going to get stronger. Once the Eddie Hurley really starts to get it going at UConn, which I expect it into it. 
you know, I think the league has a good shot to get seven. You know, I, I think Marquette's definitely in the tournament, even though he stayed to have some slippers lately. I think Xavier's going to make it. Um, I think Butler's clearly going to make it. And, and I think Providence is going to find its way in. You know, they have seven quadrillion wins. And for the league to get 17 and then to have the, the three big teams with, with high seeds with chances to see the league, it would be terrific. Which would be really all they, they could have asked out of this year. The league is it's, it's a fun league. It's as aesthetically pleasing. The offense is good. The team's defense. You know, I don't think anyone really thought once all those teams left that the league would get back to this level so fast. And now with UConn coming in next year, I mean, the Big East is clearly one of the best programs, one of the best conferences in the country. Yeah, they are. And they have a legitimate Final Four contender, in my opinion, in Seton Hall. They haven't been that far since 1989. But, I mean, they got a star in Miles Powell. They got great depth. They got a good big in Sandro Mamukelashvili. Like, what do you think about the Seton Hall team, their chances to get to the Final Four this year? Yeah, I mean, they they had some, they had, they, I wouldn't call it a slump, but they did go through a little rough period where they lost at home to Xavier, they lost at Providence, they're down big, they lost Puck and Hope to Creighton, but now they responded with a few wins um, last week. Yeah, I, I like them a lot. You know, Miles Powell's shocked and a little iffy lately, and that's really something they need to figure out before the tournament. But I also think part of that is teams have been facing him for four years. They know how to defend him. Once you're at a tournament and you're facing teams that haven't played against him, it will be it will be a little at least a little different. Yeah, I mean look, they defend really well. They have senior senior leadership with with Powell Clinton United and Ramaro Gill. Uh Sandra Mambukaus really missed seven weeks with a fractured arm fractured wrist, and he's been terrific lately. He really gives them that consistent second score. He's a six eleven left you can shoot, you can create. I think he's their best pro prospect. This is a team that has to make it at least in the second weekend. And yeah, look, we'll see what the draw is like, but it's no question they have Final Four potential. Clearly the best season that they've had in a, a long, long time. It has been. And for a while, it looked like it could be a fun year for St. John's, too. Because, I mean, they had the great run in non-conference. They beat Arizona. They beat West Virginia. Everything fell apart in the Big East play. Like, what do you think went wrong for the Johnnies? You know, I... I think they I think they overachieved a little early. You got to remember they lost three starters from last year's team with with Smory Pond, Justin Simon, and Marvin Clark. They're really depending on a lot of experienced guys who really haven't gone through this before. Mustafa Heron really hadn't played well in the Big East. Now he's out. For, he looks like he's out for the year with an with a three or his ankle. And the league is terrific. You know, I think that's the biggest problem with they've got. You know. I think Mike Anderson is a very good coach. I really, he's really given this program an identity with the way he, with how hard they play and with his full court pressing and trapping. You know, if he could have come in with this team last year, they probably would have won seven or eight league games. The problem is he joined the Big East for the worst possible year to join the Big East. I have, you know, St. John's has to be patient. I have complete confidence by year three. They'll be, they'll be a good team. They'll be knocking on the NCAA tournament door. I just think expectations are a little too high when they have the two nice non-conference wins. The league was just too good this year. They, you know, they had a makeshift roster. They had to put together late. And when you're in a conference as good as it was this year, that's just not going to work. Yeah, they're not going to the tournament, but Rutgers looks like they will be. The first time since 91 that they're going to the dance. So based on what you've seen out of Rutgers, what do you like about them? Look, they, they really defend. Steve Peichel is obviously a very good coach. Field Baker has hit some huge shots, but the one thing they can't win away from the building, they have one win away from the rack at Nebraska, which is one of the worst power five teams in the country. The schedule the rest of the way is very difficult. I've said it for a few weeks now. I think they're going to be invaded for the first four. I think the committee is going to say, look, you have a good, your resume is decent, you have some really good home wins, but this, this problem of yours that you can't win away from your building is an issue. So you got to prove it to us. That you deserve to be the main draw. So go Dayton and win a game to, put, to to kind of earn your way in. Because look, then Tony's not played it at the rack. You know, the Rutgers have to win away from their building. You know, if I'm if I'm in that committee, I worry like they push the tournament. You guys, what what, what makes us think you guys are going to perform when you when you haven't been able to win a, uh, on the road? And now they've lost a few in a row here. I think they need to win at least one more game to get to Dayton. I think two more so you get to the main draw. So, you know, I think Rutgers fans are getting a little uneasy here. They're used to so much failure. They're kind of thinking this, this 
could be a collapse. I don't see it quite as it's that bad. I think they'll find their way in, but I think they're going to be invaded. Yeah, that would be interesting to see what happens with them there. Another team before we get to, I think, another team in the local area. They're not, probably not going to dance this year, but what do you think of UConn this year? I don't know, last year in the AAC before they head to the Big East again. Well, I'm a little disappointed. Um, I thought they would be a little better. I, I, I didn't think they'd be a tournament team, but I thought they would at least be you know, kind of in the mix, and they're, they're clearly not there yet. It's obviously going to take a little longer for, for Danny over at UConn to, to get it going. Now, they do have one very good bright spot. James Booknight's freshman wing looks like he's going to be an absolute star. You know, um, he's going to be one of the best players in the Big East next year. He's he's terrific. He's really come on as this season. That season's on. And they have been better. They they've had some nice wins. They beat Memphis. Um, you know, so they 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 beat Tulsa. They have shown some signs. And just look, Danny Danny is a terrific coach. I have no question he's going to get that program turned around. It's just you know. It just might take maybe a year or two longer than everyone hoped for, but there's no doubt he's they're going to be a they're going to be they're going to be a, a lot to deal with in the Big East in the years to come, and it's going to really improve that conference, which is already pretty good. Yeah, it has been pretty good, and we all talk about the big guys in March, but the real stars of the tournament, in my opinion, are the little guys, the mid majors, and come in and make some noise. We have some interesting mid-majors in the area. Anybody catching your eye right now, teams that you think could be interesting to watch, they go through their conference tournaments? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking local, there's no doubt Hofstra is clearly the best mid-major in this area. I don't even think it's close. Now, they're uh, two up in the CAA with two games to play. They're going to win that league for the second straight year. They have, it's funny, it's the year after they, they lose Justin Rice Foreman, who was one of the best mid-major players in the country. Just a terrific, terrific college player. And here they are headed back to win another league title. And I think they're going to get it done this year. I, I think they're better defensive than they did. They, they're more balanced last year. They were just so dependent on, on Rice Foreman. And this year, whether it's the short, the short Bowie, it's Eli Pemberton, it's Isaac Conte. They, they have a lot of weapons. Tariq Coburn. They really have a lot of options. And this year, the conference tournament's not only down South and Charleston. It's in Washington, D.C., which you would think maybe more of their fans can get to. I, I think they're going to finally get in, which it would be 19 years the last time they went dancing. I, I think this is really the, the time. And I think they're going to be a tough to match up with. They're a very good offensive team. They, they play four out. They can really shoot the three. They're not going to be, they, they're not going to be an easy team to beat in the tournament either. No, they're not. And I'm also, I might be a little biased. I've seen a lot of their games this year because of this league, but I think they're not going to be a high seed in the, ter- in the term, whoever comes out of the Metro Atlantic, but like that league, top to bottom, is been very competitive. I mean, one to seven as of recording, a day of recording, it's separated by about like three games. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I always really come on. You know, you never count them out. They won five and six. They had a great comeback uh, against Ryder down five at 30 seconds left. I know Tim Poof is on the sideline, but Arnold's done a terrific job keeping that team together. When it looked like it could really splinter and they could kind of, you know, fall, fall the bottom of that league. You know, no, no one's going to want to see those, those maroon jerseys up in, uh, up in Atlantic City. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be fun. Zach, thanks for all the time today. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people follow you on social media and keep up with what you're doing in the post? Um, yeah, my Twitter is nypost underscore uh, Brazil. That's nypost underscore B R A Z I L L E. Um, I, uh, I'm on Twitter a lot as my wife could attest to, and, uh, I, I definitely will respond to you as long as it's civil and it's respectful. And, uh, you know, even if it's a little insulting, I usually respond to at least once. So, you know, feel free to, to, to ask me anything and, and to reach out to me if you want. Yeah. And Zach, I see got recently got shouted out by Ian Eagle during the Seton Hall St. John's broadcast. So name's getting bigger. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, my uh, my boss sent me the link, and I was pretty glad to put it on Instagram. And I was, he, 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 I think it was the best guys. Were, guys an absolutely uh, a guys an absolute legend. Yeah, he is Zach. Thanks for all the time today. I really appreciate it. No problem, man. Have a good one. All right. We are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. A little bit of an unexpected uh, side tour here back into the Courier Enthusiasm world. 
Well, welcome back to the podcast first. The official Curry Enthusiasm correspondent and fellow suffering Jet fan, Martina Puccio. Martina, welcome. How are you? Hey, hey, Mike. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. I really uh, love doing this all the time. And uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a great uh, episode that embodies uh, what it's like to be a Jets fan and the impact they have on you. Yeah, just to offer a little uh, scene setting here, we had talked, we did the premiere of Courier Enthusiasm, I think, back in January on the podcast. We're, we are going to do the finale, but the day before recording, a tweet came out from ESPN's Jet Report, Rich to me. You said that the Jets were going to have a big part in the Courier Enthusiasm episode that aired on Sunday, March 1st. We said, we'll watch this. We'll see. We have to make a call. And then, oh boy, we had to get get on this. Yeah, and and we were just saying before we went um, to record this that we that we didn't think it would be this big of towards the plot line because because the second they mentioned Le'Veon Bell at uh, at the table when they first go to the restaurant where they had Nick Kroll by the way who I love he's one of my favorite comedians um, I I just couldn't stop laughing because then they were making all the references and and when Larry was sitting at the widow's house talking about how he hasn't enjoyed a football season since 1969, I can agree with that only because I've been alive since 1995 and I don't think I've ever fully, truly enjoyed a football season except maybe once, maybe one of those Jets AFC championship game teams, but that's it because it still doesn't result in anything. Um, So yeah, I totally agree with everything. All right, now we've given you a little bit of subtext, but we're going to throw the good old spoiler warning up. If you have not seen Season 10, Episode uh, I think it's 7 of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. yeah, so you want to you get all the Jet references, go watch the episodes, about 35 minutes, the latest in a stellar season of Curb, but my goodness, the Jets killed him. Yeah, um... <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, look, I, I was cracking up when, I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing that, like, happened within the show, but it's just so, like, so funny. It's absolutely, like, unbelievable. Like, I would just, it honestly perfectly encapsulates every, everything it's like to be a Jets fan, that there's just so many situations that you could point to over the course of time that they don't, they don't make your life better, you know? Like, watching the Jets on Sunday isn't enjoyable. It's not something that you really look forward to. Because there's a, there's lots of difference here, yeah, and, and I also like the reference to the Knicks a little bit. That was pretty funny. I don't relate to that as much, but I'm, I'm sure you do uh, more so. Oh yeah. But but yeah, I mean, look, you couldn't write it up any better. And then the whole Austin Safarian Jenkins touchdown with a fumble out of the end zone, I believe it was. Um, I forget what year. I think it was 2018, Seven, maybe 17. Oh, 17, 17. Yeah. So. So I mean that that too against the Patriots and um, it was really funny how like Jeff Garland was just was just trying to well not Jeff Garland well Jeff in the show yeah. was just trying to tell him he's like the expectations just aren't the same like the Patriots you know yeah and it's true to an extent but that still doesn't you know account for how awful and painful it is to just root for them yeah so to reset here the beginning of the episode starts off with. Larry, uh, Jeff, Richard Lewis, and their friend Carl, like playing golf. They go to lunch at a restaurant. We'll get to the restaurant later. That's a whole other funny plot point I want to touch on. But while at the restaurant, Carl gets the text. Le'Veon Bell's out for the season with a knee injury. He starts going like, oh, my God, this is awful. The life, My life is over. The Jets stink. And we get that whole debate about how the Jets like ruin everything for him. And then we find about like three minutes later that he has killed himself. And Larry David puts it together. He's like, oh, my God, the Jets killed him. Yeah, I mean, how could you how could you not make that deduction at that point? Because because uh, he was so visibly upset, and we we never we don't know anything about this character, and he's just a lot of people don't show rage within the show that often. There there's rage from time to time, but it's in like you know actual moments about things that you know kind of matter. I mean, Susie's just an angry woman, so she's always cursing. By the way, I don't know how you feel about how funny her outfits are now because they're so they're so bizarre on how ridiculous she actually dresses like i i actually can't believe it except the time that at the second time they went back to the restaurant she was dressing normal but um yeah and then the deshaun watson reference too was a, was a great one on how they passed up on him i'm kind of disappointed though larry with the lamar jackson one because 
the story goes, I don't know if you know or, or if some fans know, he had an interview with Michael K before the season started, uh, the Kirby Enthusiasm season started. And he was talking about how he gave a phone call to Mike, Mike, Mike McCagnan to go and draft Lamar Jackson. And, and he said, uh, Larry said that Mike McCagnan just gave him kind of a condescending answer. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll look into that for sure. Yeah, like, what the hell is he talking about? Like, he knows anything. Obviously, Lamar wins MVP. So, um, yeah, I mean, it again, it's just, I don't know, it's just great. I I just loved it. And it, I don't know if, if you're a Jets fan, I think you'll like it a lot more than if you're not a Jets fan. Because I think it, it, it's easier to have the understanding and the sympathy to, to relate to it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, plus, the, like, LD, you know he's a huge Jets fan. He's getting all the references in there, like, I mean, I never in my life thought I'd hear Austin Safarian Jenkins referenced in pop culture. <laughs> Especially in, in a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where, in reality, they don't even talk about sports that much. This might be one of the few times that even references liking the Jets uh, outside of this because I know he might have said something about Joe Namath because Joe Namath is, I mean, he's been embedded in pop culture for, for decades. He still is to this day. Um but you're right. I mean, no one, Austin Severian Jenkins, like he, he could have gone a bunch of different ways too, right? I mean, all those missed kicks in the playoff game against Pittsburgh, um, uh, losing the Mud Bowl. Darl uh, Mono. So <laughs> the Mono thing is, is definitely, yeah, the butt fumble. How about the butt fumble? I yeah. mean, come on, that thing was played on repeat. It still yeah. is to this day a, a reference of point um, to what it's like the root for them. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was definitely definitely a lot of fun. You got all the good references in, and I have to, I do have to say, I mean, you're right. Not a lot of sports references on Kurt. I mean, we had the Mookie Bill Buckner plot a couple of years ago. We had Joe Pepitone jersey. Joe Pepitone jersey. We had Shaq getting tripped by LD back in season two, I think that was, and like that's really it for Kurt. So for him to go full New York sports references on a HBO episode, it goes airs nationally. Very bold. Yeah, who knows? Maybe it'll reverse some kind of curse, you know, like Larry's trying to exercise some demons. He's trying everything he can to maybe change the Jets' fortune. I, 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 that's probably not what he was thinking, but um, who knows? I mean, look, it, I, I like how it gets brought to the forefront about how how suffering it is to be a Jets fan, right, to play into to the name of the podcast. I mean, we, we root for two of the, well, you actually root for all the three really tough teams in New York at this point, right? You know, Knicks, Mets, Jets. Um, doesn't get tougher than that. You can argue the Jets just, the way they just go about things and how simply really nothing can go their way, even though it's impossible for them to, like, mess up, right? Like, the Mets, the Mets have success. It's just a couple of things preventing them, right? The Knicks are just straight up bad. But it's like the Jets have opportunities to be good, and, and it's just they sign. They always try to find some way to just absolutely ruin it, and and they feel the consequences of it for like a decade, and, and it just doesn't stop. And and it's really just it perfectly encapsulates because like I, I'm only 24, right? I can't even imagine being a Jets fan at Larry Davis. Like 1969 was it? Like that's it? Nothing's even close to it. A couple of AFC Championship games. I think they've lost like five in a row. Because yeah, it's terrible. Like how could you? How could you enjoy it? It, it must be really uh, difficult to do that over the course of five decades. Yeah, this is definitely cathartic for LD. This is like you know what? Like the Jets drive me crazy. I'm gonna make the Jets a plot point in my show and just air it out for the entire world to see. Yeah, I mean, look, and and it's probably one of the better seasons like jet seasons to follow up and have this episode for, because it's really fresh in your mind about how disastrous they are. Right. But, you know, like being the only team to lose to the one in 15 Cincinnati Bengals, this, the mono situation, the CJ Mosley injury, um, uh, Colegio Semele's like situation too. I mean, even this past decade was one of the worst, to ever root for the Jets for, and they were saying this was probably the worst one to root for the Jets in since the 1970s. So, I mean, it goes that far back, and, and it's been that bad for this long now. Yeah, I can only imagine what the movie was like in Florham Park tonight if this shit with this episode airing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. look, I, I know they say any PR is like good PR, 
Um, but they, this doesn't help the Jets' reputation, right? Like, this only further cements them that they can't get out of their own way. They're always the the butt end of a joke, and and we get it. Like he's a comedian. Like comedians will do it for all their teams, but at the end of the day, the jokes just always go against the Jets, and the Jets are always at the end of it. Um, besides, like you know, maybe the Browns or the Lions, but they're not as as as, as big or as in a big enough market to get that the same kind of like attention that they do. But yeah, man, I mean, this is. Uh, this is one of the things I could definitely laugh at when it when it involves the Jets and me not being angrily laughing, you know. Like it, it, this was a good, funny, lighthearted laugh, not a not a god damn it, like this sucks, like the Jets are awful again, like. But you can't help but laugh, uh, kind of laugh, you know. Yeah, you definitely can't help but laugh. I thought it was just perfectly like encapsulated, and as you pointed out, the name of this podcast, folks, you can figure out where it came from. I so can't get over it. It's so it's 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 honestly perfect. Yeah. Just end the suffering. Just end the season uh, with the Jets. Um, even the Mets, they use that acronym too. My entire team sucks. You, you can't get away with it, man. You you got to be pretty happy. At least the Knicks don't have a team name that you can make an acronym from that would perfectly describe them. I think just the the sound and the word of the Knicks alone is is, is terrifying. Um, so. So that yeah, it's great. I'm actually happy for you personally that it's so it's so dead on and, it, and it's right up right on with your brain. Yeah, right when Larry said the line too, this they just bring so much suffering. Like, Bing, we're doing this tonight. <laughs> yeah, I had I just had to text you. I try not to like text. I like people to watch all this watching a show when it's like live TV. But I, I just couldn't help myself. Like I had to. I had to be like, like this is this is unbelievable. It's still perfect. Um, but let me ask you though, like the length of these episodes this season, they've, they've been noticeably longer. I know you and I weren't that big of fans of one of the longer ones when they went on the vacation for that one wedding. But are you a fan? I, I know it's your podcast, but I'm asking a question. Like, are you a fan of this going like a little over like ten minutes? For me, to a point tonight, it kind of dragged a tiny bit. It was a little bit tonight. It's not as bad as it's been. For me, I'd rather have the tight 27 than, like, the 34 where it's going. We feel like it's going a little too long. It does feel like it's going a little too long because almost like there's, like, a couple scenes in recent episodes that you think is going to be the last one, but it just actually, like, keeps going. So, um, yeah, I... I don't know. I I really like this season now. I I, I kind of thought one of the episodes was mediocre, but overall, I mean, it's I, it's been great. And you're right, by the way. You have to give credit to yourself um, because I remember you were the one thinking that Mocha Joe was going to be one of the season long uh, plots, and it ended up being that. So you yeah. that off. Yeah, the Spite Store is still going on. It's not opened yet. It's still. I'm sure that's the season finale. He's going to open the Spite Store. Oh my God! Yeah, and. I can't. I love that. Like Mocha Joe's mom is involved in it now. Mocha Jane. <laughs> yeah, Mocha Jane. <laughs> latte it's just so. It's so ridiculous. And then everything Larry is putting into his his store is just so um, absurd. It, it, it's so funny when he gets tone deaf like that. Like yeah. like a lot of the decisions are just so idiotic, and he's just overthinking it. Like uh, the woman's bathroom. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, I did not like the Vince Vaughn stunt casting as for as a uh, Freddie Funkhauser. I don't, I don't like that casting choice. But I will say, the the scene in the bathroom when he asked, it, he was like, "Do you actually consult with women on this thing?" And he's like, "Nah." I just felt like so LD. No, it did. Yeah, exactly. Whenever he has, yeah. he has that response or something like, yeah, yeah. you know, like when he was saying, like, you you could mourn, you could do your thing, and you know, and send the text, and then him trying to get like five hundred dollars from. He's just so he's just so ridiculous um, yeah, like, with the with the way he goes about it. Yeah, like like well, we'll touch a couple of points on this episode. I want to touch on like obviously like the whole like the other main thread lines of this episode is that Larry is trying to like get with Doctor Carl with uh, Carl's widow, played by Jane Krakowski, and like obviously he's like gets almost all the way there, but then he like screws it up at the end by getting into a fight over five hundred dollars in Austin Safari and Jenkins, which just sounds like a typical LD thing. Yeah, exactly, and and it's funnier when um she she's arguing with him as he's walking out because 
is again is like something you just don't get over and like it's one of those like kind of jet games and plays that you know i kind of equate it to red sox uh fans and you know like even cubs fans too for example right like just a team that always just got in their way, always depressing, always finding the worst way to rip your heart out, lose all the time. And there's just so many like games and moments throughout the years that just like affected that. And you don't get over them until you finally win it. Right. Like now the Red Sox don't talk as much about Bill Buckner, uh, the Bucky Dent home run, you know, a bunch of other things. And now Cubs fans don't really talk that much about Steve Bartman and then injuries, you know, like Kerry Wood, stuff like that. 1969 season. Um, you know, it all goes away. But for the Jets, it's just like, you know, it's a never-ending cycle. of, and, and at the end of the day, you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And that's just me personally. Now, I, also, I want to get your opinion here. Before we, before we get to the point of how Larry blew this, great, like, what was your take on Larry's approach to this whole situation? Like him saying, you know what? Like she doesn't need that more. I'm going to make a move right now. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I get where he's coming from. Right. Because he doesn't, I don't think he like cares that much when it has to do with that kind of stuff, because like he was kind of open originally to Ted dating Cheryl, right? Like he wouldn't care. He didn't care that much. Like, even if he's divorced to her, it kind of violates the bro quote, bro code, quote unquote, right? Like yeah. you don't even like that's your one of your close friends. You don't start dating their ex-wife. Like that's ridiculous for him. It, it wasn't that close of a friend, um, and and she's like widowed now. You know, it's a it's a little different. So I, I'm not surprised that he took the approach. I just think it's funnier how he fumbled the bag like he did. Yeah, I also thought it was funny when they were in the car driving home the funeral. He was, like, freaking out like a high schooler over the text, like, she texted me back! <laughs> yeah, that's, I kind of get it because every Jeff, Jeff, and, uh, Jeff and Richard were both, like, you know, downplaying this situation and kind of like, ah, like, you got no shot, and doubting him. And then when, when it was a miraculous like that, and he was right, like, he did pick up on some signs. She wasn't just being kind. Um like it was a victory for him that he's that he hasn't felt in a while. So I I, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, the text message part is just really funny to see a seven year old like freak out over. Yeah, it was that was that was funny for sure. I do think I also number one I you might you brought him up before like I love the league. I was so happy to see Nick Kroll on this episode and like I thought the whole ugly section of the restaurant thing I think was actually a very hysterical point. That that was I yeah I mean Nick Kroll's reaction. <laughs> He was when he was like, "Oh, what a, what about if we could go sit on that side?" He was just kind of like, oh, you know, like he didn't want to admit that it's ugly here, good looking there. It was it was kind of like, okay, yeah, he kind of. I have to think of something quick on my feet uh, to come up with a good explanation for this. Um, and and yeah, it was great. Also, the bathroom attendant thing. This is it's funnier because. I had my mom's surprise, 50th birthday party last night. We had it at a venue where one of the, like the, the bathrooms was like one of those nice bathrooms where they had the bathroom attendant. And I was like the only one in there at the time. And they had like no music playing. It was like very quiet. It was just awkward. You don't want them in there. I agree with Larry. Like you just, just get out. I, I, I don't like feeling obligated to tip someone after I wash my hands, you know, doing something that I should be doing anyways. Like I don't want to give two dollars three dollars like i don't have enough money as it is. i don't want to give it to a guy that's there hearing me go to the bathroom but that's but that's just me that's one of the things i agree full on with larry yeah i do think also they make good use of like the league alumni on this sh- on this show i remember a couple of years ago they had the guy who played kevin on the show they've had i think mark duplass has been on the show like they've they've done make a job they had a, they had yeah they had kevin's wife used to be the male lady that larry was dating yeah. um she was the mail carrier uh, and then I forget how their relationship ended, but it was a few seasons back, so it was pretty, it was pretty funny because she was in there too. Yeah, that is a that is a good point. I didn't notice that about the league. It was a great plot point, and I also want to bring up another great thing here. With I think the the doctor's son was also hysterical. Oh, oh yeah, oh my god, the son of the son of a doctor. That at the end of the scene, uh, at, at the end of the episode, excuse me, was like it was fantastic how he just runs up like that because there's been running jokes on the internet about like uh, people like you know doctors on planes and stuff like that but 
Larry's point about Louis Armstrong's kid playing the trumpet. <laughs> it's like the perfect analogy. I didn't think he was that ridiculous in saying that he didn't want to be diagnosed by the sun because he's right. He's not a, he's not a freaking doctor. Like, let's be serious here. He's just, he just knows a lot from like his father. So, yeah. I mean, the whole diagnosis thing yeah. <laughs> and consultation. Yeah. yeah. So to set, to set that all up, it all starts because most of the episode, Larry has a rash on his neck and they did a great job making it like really obnoxiously noticeable, this rash. And like they, they set him up, like he's interviewing the the uh, doctor's son for a job at Latte Larry's, and he's like, "Oh, you have acute dermatitis. It's like you should get this to to treat it." He's like, "I don't want your medical advice. You're not a doctor." And then like the doctor diagnosed him later. He's like, "Oh yeah, you were had the he had the exact same diagnosis I did." Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. And he said he said he had, he said he had the same exact diagnosis, and then. And then he's just like sitting there, like, okay, maybe, maybe he's got a point. Maybe, maybe he does know what he's talking about. But, um, but then I love even at the end when someone's life is on the line, he still just, you know, makes it a point, you know, to kind of just be like, I was right. Like, this kid's not a doctor. Like, he's not going to save this guy. You know what I mean? And the Nick Kroll's face at the end of it was even funnier because, because he's like, to me, I don't know if I, if I read that wrong, but to me, he was kind of happy that an ugly person was choking on their food or something, or that was, or that's kind of the way I looked at it. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was yeah. Because also, that's the end of the episode. There we have Larry and Jeff, because Larry basically blackmails his way into the pretty person, into the pretty person section. He's sitting there having lunch with Jeff. The kid comes in, and a point that we did not mention yet is that. Larry recommended to Jane Krakowski's character to have a rash checked out by the kid. And the kid did a complete, like, thorough exam of her, apparently. She had consented to this. And he verified a claim that the doctor's wife made about about their uh, lovemaking. Oh, yeah. The the hummingbird nest recipe. I, yeah. I actually lost it when he said Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't stop laughing at that. That was, that was just hilarious. And, uh, Oh, even Jeff's thing at the at the funeral. This one magical six months. And then I thought that was just like it's just a great, like witty, funny line, you know. It doesn't take too much effort to come up with. No, it doesn't take too much effort to come come up with for sure. I thought that was a great ending to that episode. I hope we see this kid stick around for the spite store opening. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, how could you not? I I, I think I'll maybe have one more part in it. I believe it'll probably go to 10 episodes this season, right? I'm, yeah. not, I'm not really yeah, sure. I think it's 10. Um, yeah, so so there's still another three episodes that we're going to we're gonna see. So maybe he gets involved in that. I would assume that I have to do when um, the coffee shop opens. But for me, I still, I'm still waiting. I, I'm kind of like on the edge of my seat each week on, on when they're going to reference Marty Funkhauser, um, because we obviously seen Freddie um, Funkhauser played by Vince Vaughn. So I'm, I'm I'm really curious. I want to see how they approach this and how they address it. Yeah, one thing I also want to bring up to you, like, is it just me or like, does it bother you that they're having so many like insta famous, instantly like recognizable famous people just playing like random roles on the show this year? Um, I I, I don't think it's that crazy. I think it's weird when they don't have them play themselves. If that's what you mean, I think it's a, it's um, it's like a little odd. You know what I mean? Because there there's some like Vince Vaughn not playing himself is kind of hard for me. Like I guess Vince Vaughn doesn't exist in like that Curb universe. Um, and also, I again to bring it back up that that reference point, he was a horrible casting for for Freddie Funkhouse, right? Yeah. Like you would think if you're getting someone's relative of someone that they would be similar to the actual character. Like he didn't resemble anything remotely of what Marty Funkhauser was. Right. Like I said, like, unless they like said his name, like there's nothing about him looks, um, you know, personality. He was nothing like Marty Funkhauser. And, and I think you're right on that. I just, it was kind of weird. Um, but the John Hamm thing, uh, we could see how it goes, but, uh, yeah, it feels Hopefully. like it feels like every week there's somebody big. Like you mean like the like the week like that had Vince Vaughn's character first debut. They had him there. They had like Isla Fish Isla Fisher playing the uh, fake crier, the the crying actress. They had uh, Clive Owen playing himself. It's like there's no rule for who actually plays themselves, who plays a character. Yeah, no, it's exactly yeah. It's it's, it's funny to me, and 
And you know what? They do a good job. Maybe maybe they view it as like they want to get on the show. They've had like a few famous, like recognizable actors. Like that guy that was the bathroom attendant today. He's been in stuff before. I don't know his name. I know it's escaping my mind. He was in the he was in like State Farm commercials in the past where he's like screaming at Rogers, Rogers when he has the yeah. cheese head on. I don't know if you recognize him from that, but I remember him from that. Um, so like they get people. It's kind of like Seinfeld a little bit. Like they get like you know Brian Cranston was on Seinfeld at one point. Like they've had like people that maybe were not as famous at the time, but then uh, I I think it's great. And even Wanda Sykes back in the earlier seasons, they used to have her. Yeah, I miss Wanda Sykes. She's been on in a while. Yeah, no, I do, and and that's something I miss too because she just always added to the show and loved going after Larry. She was she reminded me of Susie, but much funnier because Susie's a very just a vulgar person that just hates Larry but like kind of loves him like a brother at the same time um so yeah yeah the one other one other thing I want to get your opinion on before before we wrap this up who drives you more nuts in my opinion I don't think either of these guys are like great like versions themselves in the show Richard Lewis or Ted Danson oh that's a good question so I said it when the first time we we did a podcast on on their show that my opinion changed over the course of time because curve has been on for almost 20 years right um i i've obviously grown up a lot in between the time since i was like 12 and and now um so my opinion on some of the characters have changed right i've always hated ted danson though on the show i love cheers i'm a big cheers fan um i think he's great but ted danson's character he just drives me nuts and, and mostly it's because of um, the whole the whole Cheryl thing. Like that 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 just annoys me on a personal level. Because how how could you automatically like or respect Ted Danson in the show now that he's dating his friend's ex wife? Like I just to me I can't look past that. And then just some of the his irrational thinking and just getting angry and upset at Larry sometimes bothers me. Richard. Richard, I've grown to like a lot more because he's just so damn shallow and he just doesn't get it. Um, because And Larry likes to call him out on it. I always find it funny. So I, he, Richard, sometimes he drives me crazy, but Ted takes the cake. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm anti-Richard Lewis. I'm just not a fan of his. I just don't, I've never liked the character. It just seems to me he's like trying too hard. Now they're trying, felt they're trying to shoehorn him into the Funkhauser stuff. Now that Funk, that, not, uh, RIP Bob Einstein, but to try and have him fill some of those roles is not working yeah i kind of get what you're what you're saying um i think i think they like work on it but i don't know I, he's not as they're not using him correctly i think you're right i think to an extent they try to get him to fill some of his voice his richard's best stuff is when he has like a, a new girlfriend or love interest involved right like single richard isn't that fun or funny to me he, he's just kind of He's just kind of there. He's like, you know, Larry's old friend from back in New York that was also a comedian, but maybe not as successful, but they love and respect each other and keep each other within the same circles. But Richard, to me, um, and he looks very old. He looks sickly um, in general. So he doesn't have a lot of energy and spry to him like Larry has, even Jeff and others. Uh, I can see where you're coming from. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing this season wrap up in a couple of weeks. And don't forget, the Jets kill Carl. <laughs> yeah, the Jets, the Jets, the Jets did kill Carl. Um, hopefully, they don't drive any other fans um, over these next few years to do that because um, I don't know how much more certain people can take. All right, Martina, I want to thank you for coming on right after the Curve episode. It was a, this was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun just to laugh at how miserable the Jets have been over our lifetimes. Yes, and and I think Larry kind of just speaks for everybody. You know, it's like when someone just like gives a speech and they're like speaking for you. It's like, yes, Larry, thank you. Now the people who aren't Jets fans watching this kind of get it. They kind of understand how ridiculous it is. We might not want to drive ourselves to the point of Carl, but we've thought about it, and a few of us have. So <laughs> thank you, Larry. Yeah, thank you, Larry. And I also want to give you the opportunity, since you're here, Tell me how to follow you on social media and some of the stuff you're up to. Yeah, so you can follow me at Martino Puccio on Twitter. Um, really just doing a lot of soccer stuff now over at Sports Grid. They have me uh, with my own show there. Uh, airs on Wednesdays at 2. 
Um, and then also I'm on NBA Twitch on Wednesday night uh, doing an NBA Fantasy Hour. So it's an NBA Fantasy Basketball show. It's like a lot of fun. Uh, there's trivia at the end of it um, and a bunch of other stuff. So you just watch on Twitch on NBA's official channel there and just check out all my stuff. Um, and then soon baseball is around the corner. So there's going to be a lot of baseball talk. Um, you'll see me, Mike, and Will probably going discussing things on Twitter as the season goes on because uh, I'm kind of a little late. I won't, I won't lie, actually. I have I have some decent expectations, but I think that's just the Mets pulling me in again. Yeah, there is some optimism for sure. I also, also want to give a shout-out to Zach Braziller from The Post, who was on this episode earlier talking some college basketball. Great conversation there. If you want, if you want more good stuff like this podcast, including actually Martinez, you know that I wrote for the blog is he actually wrote a Jet off-season preview, so there's actually even more fitting timing this episode. Oh, that's, oh, that's so fantastic. Yeah, I mean... Free agency is like right here, too. It really kind of just snuck up on you, and we were also discussing it earlier today, I believe, um, with some of that Jack Conklin stuff. But, yeah, man, I mean, it's this is really an interesting offseason for the Jets because, you know, we finally get to see what this heralded uh, young GM and Joe Douglas is uh, all about. Yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. For more on that, you can check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. People who want to subscribe to this podcast, they can also check that out on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and I actually started uploading episodes to YouTube of late, so this episode will be going on YouTube shortly after it comes out. Oh, that's that's fantastic. you got to get pictures of uh, of uh, LD and some of the Jets moments over, over the over the part. you got to get a, a screenshot of this Australian Jenkins fumble. That would be, that would be perfect. It would be perfect for sure. You, you can follow Martino at, at Martino Puccio. You can follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. You can see my great curb tweet, which has since this, I put this out right before we started recording. I've already gotten three comments, four retweets, and 14 likes on it about Larry David talking about the Jets on Curved. That did it. Did you really? That's fan. That's fantastic. I yeah. got a. <laughs> yeah, that's now four retweets. Yes. Tweet a few yeah. weeks ago. Yeah, friend of the podcast, Mocha Joe. Maybe we should reach out to Severio Garris if he wants to talk to us in the curb finale. I think you absolutely should. I bet he will. Yeah, he seems to be a big fan of the fan engagement. So you never know. Maybe we'll get lucky talking to him on our curb podcast. Sounds good. Best of luck with that. Yeah. And I think after this episode, I think we have to say the hashtag for the podcast is magical. Yes, that's exactly right. They hashtag magical. I'm on board with that. I agree. Yep. Hashtag magical for this podcast. You made it to the end of the show. Next week on the podcast, I'm doing a special Big East tournament preview. I have our good friend Troy Moriel is going to be on the podcast. We can talk. He's going to talk some St. John's basketball. I actually have a guy. I have a guy coming on who does student radio for Seton Hall. We'll be talking to him as well. And working on a big guest for the Big East Tournament. That will be fun. That's coming up next week. But until then, I hope you have a better week than Luis Severino. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.